0: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Reorg Europe podcast. I'm Bart Capici, Senior Legal Analyst in the Covenants team at Reorg's London office, and today I'm going to be speaking with Apostolos Gutzinus, leader of the capital markets practice at Millbank in London, about the Swiss government's treatment of the Credit Suisse crisis and what it might mean for the broader European additional Tier 1 market. Apostolos has worked on a number of AT1 and other regulatory capital deals for banks and has very deep experience of bank restructurings in Greece and other jurisdictions. Apostolos is joining us on this podcast in a personal capacity, and his comments today are not attributable to Millbank or any other partner at the firm, nor should they be considered legal advice. Finally, while we express views as to what may have driven some of the actions taken, We were not in the room at the time and our knowledge of the events is necessarily inferior to those who were.
1: So, our topic today is basically the write down by Credit Suisse of all 16 billion Swiss francs worth of their AT1 bank regulatory capital bonds. Now, what happened here? Uh, Well, as a brief recap, Credit Suisse has been having difficult times lately. Um, They run their biggest annual loss in 2022 since the financial crisis. They had identified certain material weaknesses in internal controls over financial reporting, and people were getting a little skittish. Um, When Silicon Valley Bank tanked um, last month, then people started looking around to see which other banks might be vulnerable and Credit Suisse started to experience a run on deposits um, and apparently uh, post-SVB uh, in the week leading up to last week uh, it was losing about 10 billion Swiss francs a day uh, in deposits. Now there was a lot of concern over what was going to happen here On Thursday, March 16th, Credit Suisse announced it would borrow 50 billion francs from the Swiss National Bank under a covered loan facility and a short-term liquidity facility and was making a tender offer to buy back two and a half billion dollars and 500 million euros of senior debt. Um, that comforted the market uh, a little bit. Uh, their subordinated notes uh, rose to, to trade at about 40 as a result of that. Um, the following day, though, March 17th, um, their AT1 bonds, the alternate tier ones, fell significantly down into the 20s and 30s. Uh, and I think the regulators thought something had to be done. Uh, What they did was they came in and they arranged a merger between Credit Suisse and UBS with CS shareholders getting one UBS share for each 22.48 Credit Suisse shares that they held. So a value of basically 3 billion Swiss francs for all Credit Suisse shares. In connection with that though, they announced that they were going to write down all 16 billion of Credit Suisse's alternate tier one capital. This, the market took rather badly because normally in the scheme of things, common equity ranks in the bottom of uh, capital instruments for a bank uh, with the AT1 ranking just above it. And everybody started to ask, how is it that they can be writing off their AT1 debt in full but still giving $3 billion of value to the common equity which should rank below it. Well, one of the answers is you need to look at the terms of the AT1 bonds themselves, Um, and there's been a bit of a debate uh, in the market as to whether or not uh, this was actually permitted under the terms of the bonds. And Apostolis, I was was wondering if you'd like to comment on on what your take on that is.
2: Well, uh let, let's start with the easy question, eh? whether this was permitted or not. Uh, gosh, I mean, the, uh, the reality is that uh, it appears from a number of public statements by various law firms and public conference calls that are being organized, and the general anxiety in the market and within the AT1 investor community that it seems to me that the permissibility of this action will be subject to legal challenge. But... But why don't we just look, go through the publicly available information to see where the uh, the discussion will be and the debate will be? Let, let's take a step back first. Uh, the these, uh, the eighty one instruments, or as as they used to be called, contingent convertibles or Cocos, uh, have been issued aplenty, especially the last several years after the two thousand eight financial crisis. Uh, for investors i think there is a real expectation expectation that they behave and they they pay and they operate as bonds they have a fixed face amount they pay regular interest uh, and the investor community expects that they be respected as bonds uh, not not uh, by the way not unreasonably if uh, it's uh, it's not our purpose here today to talk about the BRRD and the overall bank resolution regime in Europe, but whichever official statement you'll check, whichever, uh, you know, legal analysis of BRRD you'll review, it will say the same things. You know, COCOS are senior to, uh, or 81s are senior in insolvency uh, to uh, common equity. Uh, they pay a fixed amount. Uh, they pay regular interest. Yes, they are perpetual. Like legally speaking, the bank never has to pay it back, but there is uh, there is callability at the option of the issuer uh, in the after five years. And generally speaking, there is, there is a, a market expectation, although not a legal obligation, that that they are called after five years. Um, so that is how the instrument works, and it's I think for inve- investors see them as bonds. Uh, they feel pretty safe. Regulators, of course, see them as a, a fundamental loss-absorption mechanism, like equity. If the bank runs into trouble, they can effectively boost the equity cushion of the balance sheet by either converting these instruments into equity or zeroing these instruments uh, down to nil. Um, so from a regulatory uh, capital perspective, In the event a bank fails or is likely to fail or in in reality the regulator and the official sector takes the view under pressure with limited information, nobody has done evaluation of the balance sheet, typically in this type of bank run where um, cash is running out the door and deposits are being withdrawn and uh, other liabilities have to be paid. The reality is, as you know, both uh, philosophically and in practice, nobody knows what the assets of the of the bank will fetch in a sale. So um, uh, there is there is enormous pressure for the regulator to take a view about the solvency of the banks. And then, if the regulator takes the view that something needs to be done and the equity cushion needs to be boosted, uh, writing them down or converting them into equity, which fundamentally from a regulatory perspective has the same effect, are the two options. Now, let's go – this is the general theory. Uh, clearly, as, as, as many of you know and many of the audience know, the, there are various legal formulations out there. In fact, the Swiss formulation, which gives the right to the regulator to compel the issuer to write them down to zero, is a distinct minority of cases – We'll, we'll come to this probably later on when we talk about the systemic impact of the Swiss regulatory approach or supervisory approach. But it is true that the overwhelming majority of instruments of 81s out there aren't providing for uh, a permanent write down to zero. Um, and most, of them, most of them are either uh, calling for a temporary write down of coupon until solvency is restored or a certain regulatory capital threshold is reached, uh, or for convertibility, which, of course, from the perspective of the holder, uh, makes a lot of difference whether they will be converted to equity, and as a result, rather than getting zero, they will get still a, a, a tradable instrument with value, which is uh, which is the equity. Now, going back to the the specific uh, uh, issue of, of credit trees, it seems to me that What has happened here, and I'm just reading between the lines of publicly available information, is the following. Um, The the contractual provision uh, provided for the so called viability event, so that uh, the the regulator can compel the issuer to write down the instrument to zero if, and there are two prongs in the Credit Suisse instrument. Uh, both prongs are working on the basis of uh, capital adequacy actions, actions that, that ought to restore the capital solvency of the institution and effectively giving the power to the regulator that uh, if, it is, if there is a viability event, if customary measures to improve the issuer's capital adequacy, being inadequate or unfeasible, the issuer has received an irrevocable commitment of extraordinary support from the public sector. and that's, So that's the first condition, that there is a extraordinary support that comes from the public purse as a first condition of the viability event. And then second, and critically, I think, that has or imminently will have the effect of improving the issuer's capital adequacy and without which the issuer would have become insolvent, bankrupt, unable to pay Part of its debts as they fall due. Um, and I think this morning, if I'm not mistaken, the, the Switzerland's Financial Market Supervisory Authority issued a statement underlying that indeed a viability event triggered the, the write-down. Uh, the regulator said in the public statement that Credit Suisse 81 instruments contractually provide that they will be completely written down in the viability event. This is true. We agree with that. In particular, if extraordinary government support is granted, as Credit Suisse was granted extraordinary liquidity assistance loans secured by a federal guarantee, these contractual conditions were met. It's interesting to me, and I I believe it will be a hotly debated topic, that in this public statement,
0: the regulator
2: was silent as to the second condition, which is that that the extraordinary commitment of support must be coupled with a determination that uh, the, the relevant actions will have the effect of improving the issuer's capital adequacy. Technically speaking, measures that affect capital adequacy are really measures because, you know, accounting wise and legally, you can't inflate your assets. The assets are what they are. You can only reduce liabilities. Um, uh, or you can, you can put additional uh, cash uh, for common equity. Or you can, uh, you can sell an asset at a profit. Or you can write down a, a debt, debt to zero or convert it into equity. Uh, none of these things appear to have happened other than the write-down itself. So there might be a question, I think... Uh, for litigators to argue, no doubt, as to whether a viability event actually occurred. The second point, and I, I think I will let you uh, follow up with any questions. I think it is interesting that even though the public statement said confidently that a viability event has occurred, indeed, the extraordinary ordinance passed by the Swiss government on the 19th of March, pursuant to which the whole deal was structured, included a little Article 5A in the the relevant bank resolution law that says at the time of the credit approval of extraordinary liquidity assistance, the regulator may order the borrower and the financial group to write down additional Tier 1 capital. So somebody thought either for the avoidance of doubt we don't know, or whether they thought that the legal argument based on the contract itself was perhaps debatable. Probably, for, probably just to bolster the legal position, they didn't want to leave it entirely to the contractual arrangement, which you know perhaps uh, perhaps raises a debate. They passed a law, um, which, uh, assuming it is constitutional, leaves no doubt that in connection with this extraordinary liquidity assistance the regulator now has an independent right quite outside the terms of the contract to order credit suisse to write down tier one capital so as i said i don't want to take a view whether this additional provision was necessary perhaps it was there for the avoidance of doubt perhaps they just wanted to embellish the legal position you know Uh, maybe they want to send a signal to the market that when a regulator in Switzerland takes extraordinary measures, they will be coupled with uh, harsh conditionality. Uh, For whatever reason, I wasn't in the room, but uh, it's it's clear to me that the contractual terms are one thing, but there was specific ad hoc legislative intervention here that was linked with the write-down, was linked to the write-down.
1: Well, you you make a very interesting point uh, about... In the definition of viability event, and and there are two arms to it, um, both of them, uh, though, require that the support provided by the government be provided in order to improve capital adequacy. And so it's couched in terms of do we have a capital adequacy crisis and or is what we are doing here intended to improve that um and you're right the uh the support that that was provided by the Swiss government was liquidity support right um and and so and i have read commentary uh, of people saying well hang on what they've done is not intended to improve capital adequacy. It's just giving them liquidity to keep them going for a period of time. That's not what the test says. Um, and interestingly, a lot of people also point, uh, in order to do a write-down, you can either have a viability event or you can have a, um, a contingency event. Um, the contingency event is... Triggered on uh, the CET1 ratio being less than 7%. And at the end of 2022, the CET1 ratio of Credit Suisse was 14.1%. So, well over double of what the trigger would be on a pure numerical test, you know, just looking at the balance sheet. Um, uh, they were very far away from that. And so if you have just got a – if you started being pretty well capitalized and things started going downhill, to say that actually it's gotten very bad and providing a liquidity facility is going to cure your capital adequacy problem – uh, yeah, I, I think that might be a little uh, a bit of a stretch. One interesting point, though, is that, you know, as you noted, viability event has two triggers. One is that the public sector provides extraordinary support. The other one is that the regulator is of the opinion um, that a write-down is necessary in order to keep Credit Suisse from becoming unable to pay a material part of its debts as they come due. And I would have thought perhaps that was the better arm to rely on because basically what had happened was you were having a run on deposits, they were running low on cash because a bank's assets are all loans out uh, to companies and it's got all these short-term liabilities in the form of deposits that were disappearing. They were going to run out of cash. If you've yeah. got no cash, you can't pay your debts as they come due. I would have thought that that was the better trigger to rely on, but unfortunately, it's not the one that that Fin yeah. mentioned. Um, let,
2: let me let me respond to that. I, I think I, I, I think it's an interesting argument. I, I, the way I mean, candidly, the way I read the the viability condition, I think the the sub-conditions are not disjunctive; they're cumulative. So I think you need to prove. That whatever actions you are taking will have the effect of improving capital adequacy, and without which the institution would, would have been unable to pay its debt. So I think I see two conditions there. So I don't think you can get away from the capital adequacy condition. But I hear you. I think an argument, an argument can be made. What, what I wanted to to emphasise here, perhaps for those for those uh, listeners who are not. Uh, 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 expertly involved in in bank resolution and and bank rescue work the reality is that in this type of situation as you can appreciate given what is at stake you know the depositors money you know ordinary citizens money the stability of the financial sector as a whole but you know most importantly the stability of the deposit and payment system of a country among other things is is, is the very high a range of discretion and discretionary powers that regulators have. So that's that's one thing. And then the second is the inherent limitation under which regulators operate. Let me give you an example. The same week that all of this is unfolding, Credit Suisse is filing its, uh, its 2022 annual report. Uh, it's reporting about 531 billion of assets and 486 billion of liabilities. So based on the balance sheet published pretty much on the days you know or the week that this drama is unfolding there is about 45 billion of shareholders equity cushion uh, obviously the market doesn't agree with the accounting because the the equity is trading at a at a fraction of the book value of the stock but we do have a very healthy capital adequacy ratio based on the 2022 results and we have public public officials categorically stating in the media that Credit Suisse has no solvency problem. In fact, the very fact that extraordinary liquidity assistance is given is is an indirect admission that the bank is solvent. As you know from basic central banking theory and practice, central banks are not really in the business of Supporting non viable or insolvent institutions, they support illiquid institutions and they can provide extraordinary liquidity. but one of the fundamental tenets of central banking is extraordinary liquidity is always offered under harsh conditions and only on the um, on the premise that the institution is 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 viable, so no taxpayers' money are spent on uh, in, inherently solvent institutions. All of this is to say that that, that the regulator has to make a very quick judgment on the day, over the weekend, as to whether uh, a liquidity crisis can move, move very quickly and in an uncontrolled way to become a solvency crisis. And the idea that certain measures are only dealing with liquidity and certain measures are only dealing with solvency and there is a clear demarcation line between the two. I think is an exaggerated and largely formulaic version of reality. In reality, if you stabilise the liquidity position of a bank, and you avert a further bank run, then its assets on balance sheet they, they will not be sold, you know, in a, in a disorganised fashion. You can then sort of proceed into an orderly. Uh, running down of assets to act, to, act, to act, uh, achieve most of its value so that liquidity support becomes solvency support and and vice versa if you if you ask uh, an auditor to run a valuation exercise of a bank on a given day they'll tell you okay does this bank have sufficient liquidity so should i mark down the assets in an orderly fashion or should i assume that the bank runs out of money so the assets are worth a lot less because I would be compelled to sell them at a heavy discount. And, and if you tell them, well, let's assume you get a 100 billion loan from the local government, which was the case with Credit Suisse, why don't you run a valuation exercise on the back of 100 billion extraordinary unconditional liquidity support? I think the solvency ratio is going to go up. So I'm trying to say that there is a real fluidity between the concepts and I think that uh, regulators do not have the privilege of uh, external observers to say, "Oh, a particular measure was only is, is a capital measure. This is a liquidity measure. Oh, uh, you took a liquidity measure, whereas your your write-down condition in the in you know in the terms of the bond talk about capital adequacy. There is a clear demarcation between the two, so you are not allowed to use it." I think real life, unfortunately, is a, is a lot more complicated than this. Having said that. They did pass an extraordinary legal instrument, whatever that means, whether they were already confident on the legal position, but they wanted to absolutely leave no doubt whatsoever, uh, so out of abundance of caution, or whether they took legal advice that perhaps they are they a little bit on a shaky ground. You know, we'll never know, or maybe we'll know if, if there is litigation, but uh, the truth of the matter is that we do have here a bank resolution that was facilitated by a write-down of an instrument that was thought to be senior to the, to, the, to the stock. That happened by a combination of contractual provisions and an extraordinary ordinance of the Swiss legislature. And in the end, it seems to me that common equity, although junior, is recovering more than the 81. So I think that is overall an interesting fact pattern. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, I, I think that's... Really, the situation that gave rise to the outrage in the market. It was not that, not so much that um, the AT1s were written down in a crisis. You kind of expect they may, they may well be. Uh, You could argue, should they just have been suspending interest on them or not if it's a liquidity problem. But, end of the day, the bonds provide that they can be written down to zero. Um, and I think there are good arguments to say that the terms of the bonds allowed them to be written down in this situation. Um, but the bigger question is, why did they write down the AT1s to zero, but still leave the common equity outstanding with some value?
2: That is, that is a good question. I, I know there's a lot of emotion out there, and, and clearly a lot of people have lost a lot of money. Uh, shareholders have lost you know, probably 90% of their investment. The the 81 uh, holders lost 100% of of, uh, of their investment. I think we've talked about the legality of all of it and the various theories and arguments. I think, as a as a as a predicate question is why commercially they thought it was a good idea. To give shareholders some recovery and not the bondholders, and I think once they decided that they want to do that commercially, I think the rest was a question of, of legal mechanism. But um, I think there's there's a lot of uh, speculation out there. I you know I'm sure I'm sure the, our uh, our listeners have read, various theories as to what they were trying to accomplish. I think that uh, all of the possible scenarios. I think they touch a version of the truth. So there is a theory that clearly common stock that has the the power to control, the power to vote. So the, if you like the privilege of voting, the privilege of controlling the enterprise, in my view, there is definitely an explanation that goes something like this. You want shareholders that have the privilege of control to, in a deal that was done over a weekend, to be supportive so that the board of directors, for example, especially of Credit Suisse, can say we uh, discharged our fiduciary duties in the best possible way. This was the best possible deal for our shareholders. Uh, it, was very, it would be very difficult to say as a board, having fiduciary responsibilities, uh, that, yeah, I sign off on this deal. That's the best deal possible if the shareholders get zero, you know? It's it's a very difficult statement. Now, you can tell me, well, uh, on the brink of insolvency, fiduciary duties move from shareholders to creditors. That's correct. So, So one might say, well, actually, the duty of the board was not to the shareholders, the duty was to the creditors at large. Yes, that runs contrary to the public statements throughout the week, that credit suisse is solvent i think they i don't think that the board has at its disposal uh, real uh, analytical quantitative uh, models and valuations to suggest that they were insolvent or nearing insolvency so it, it i think it would have been a, a difficult judgement call there's not there's not there's no easy judgement call here let me you know clearly i grant you that you're looking at this and you say are we insolvent? Well, what is the evidence for that? Where are, where are our duties? And we have a gun to our head from the central government, so perhaps, our, you know, let's just keep it simple, our duties are to the shareholders. I mean, that's a theory. I think another theory is the systemic effect, like next time that a Swiss bank needs extraordinary share capital, you want to have a memory of, you know, shareholders recovering a bit. That's another That's another theory. You know, you want shareholders to get something, you know, now that they're more willing to support in the future.
1: No, and, and end of the day, if you're a highly regulated bank and your principal regulator says you must merge with UBS, you're going to need to have some substantial grounds to say no. Because if you say no.
2: And perhaps, exactly. And perhaps you may need a fig leaf. Of because in the end of the day, all of these points, yes, they are political and regulatory, but they are also legal. Like yeah. you need to make it in a legal way as best as you can. So, the, it, you know, as I said, you may need a legal argument, and and this small recovery for the shareholders was just enough. The other theory I've heard, I have some sympathy for that, is apparently there's a lot of stock in the hands of employees. There's a lot of hot stock in the hands of retail investors. So maybe that was another consideration. Like I said, I wasn't in the room. These are all guesses uh, that people have. But, uh, you know, I think somewhere in there, whether it was for the legal reason that convertibility was impossible, whether they wanted to uh, give, a, uh, give a tip to the shareholders as a reward for the support. You know, a few months ago when there was a, another share capital increase of the bank, whether it was to protect uh, employees And retail investors, I mean, somewhere in there, I think, is probably the truth of the matter. And then, of course, once they decided that they they want to go down that path, they were looking for the the, the correct legal mechanism to do it.
1: Yeah. Now, let me ask you one final question, which is, now that this has happened, what do you think this means for the broader AT1 market?
2: I think um, the market will... Will need a bit of time to to absorb it. I think that uh, I think this is a sophisticated market. I think people will need to absorb uh, the facts. And, and in my view, I don't want to be nonchalant about all of this. But I do believe, um, having considered like the the legal framework, the regulatory framework, public statements made recently by the SSM and the European Central Bank and the Bank of England but also understanding as best as i can the legal framework i think that the swiss uh, case was or has been an outlier i think it's very difficult to see this uh, coming up in, in in the in the eurozone you know in relation to other european banks uh, in the future first reason is it has not happened in the past you may you may remember a number of bank resolutions In Spain, in Greece, Mm -hmm. there are some examples, actually some of them are being litigated, where 81 instruments were written down in all of the previous cases where the European Union and its institutional apparatus had been involved. The 81 instruments were written down only after the equity was fully absorbed and Mm -hmm. written down. So the natural order in the past, so if you want to judge a regulator by its actions, not by what they say, you know, the first point of good news for the European AT one market is that European regulators have respected the order of priority in insolvency. That's number one.
1: Yeah, that's right. Number two,
2: there are very few instruments if you want to be technical, very few AT one's AT one left in the market. I have done a brief survey and I think there is there's a bunch of them in the UK and then there is Switzerland. And maybe there is one in Spain, although I'm I'm, I'm sort of verifying that. But I don't think that most, the bulk and the majority of the 81 instruments in the market provide for a permanent and full write-down mechanism. They're either subject to convertibility, which of course produces a different outcome for the Mm -hmm. holders, or a temporary uh, write-down. So we have... So that's the second reason why I don't think that the 81, 81 market should overreact is that um, uh, the, the Swiss uh, terms conditions are a little different from the majority, if not the overwhelming majority, of the 81 market. And of yeah. course, anybody can go and check that these are publicly publicly filed documents. Yeah. But I don't think I'm wrong on that one. No,
1: I, I think that's a, that's a very good point because, for example. Had uh, the Credit Suisse AT ones had a provision allowing for conversion to equity, then the AT ones could have flipped into equity and been treated the same as yes. the common shareholders. Yes. And so the big problem here of we've inverted the order wouldn't have arisen. Uh, yes. And and you know and, and this problem arose because that's the way the bonds were drafted.
2: Yeah. So we have two good reasons already, and there's a third one. So there is a full. Legal and regulatory framework uh, that has been laid out by the European authorities and has been incorporated in the legal systems uh, of all the EU member states for bank resolution and and bank recapitalization, the the BRRD framework, which uh, makes in 99.999% of the cases of either a precautionary capitalization, a bail in, or other resolution action in similar circumstances, the BRRD, in similar situations, compels that loss absorption needs to follow the order of priority. So it's equity first, and then AT1. I I don't think it's 100% true that there can be no set of circumstances where BRRD will always provide technically and legally For an equitization uh, in the order of insolvency, I think there is um, a very small gap, but in 99.999% of cases, either bail-in, resolution, precautionary capitalization, or other official action to rescue, recapitalize, or boost the solvency ratios of a bank. What happened in Switzerland absent uh, an extraordinary usage of legislative powers, which I think is, is probably improbable in any European jurisdiction, it, it's just not legally possible to see what happened in not be repeated.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Okay, well, listen, Apostolos, this has been exceedingly illuminative. Um, I thank you very, very much for your time, um, and uh, I thank all of our listeners for their time, and I wish you all a very good day.